we're so grateful that you decided to join us tonight. Uh, Jack uh, and his wife Amy and their family have been traveling across the Midwest for the last couple of weeks, so they're out of town. We've got Brian and the Lee family, Kimberly, all of them. They're suffering for the cause of Christ in Hawaii, uh, having to work on their sunburns and, you know, avoiding that. We get it. It's a rough life. So they're out of town. Uh, you've got Matt and Jen Warnstadt. They're out of town. Uh, so pretty much uh, my wife and I are the only staff members left, and, and that's why I'm here. So uh, thank you. But we're in the midst of our Summer at Element series, and that's just basically all that means is you're going to hear a bunch of different people speak. There's no really uh, rhyme or reason to the series. It's just kind of what God's been laying on the heart of each person that we've been having to come and share. And so tonight, uh, we are going to dive into a topic that God has been speaking to me about for the last couple of, uh, well, more than the last couple of months, probably for about half a year now. It's just something that I've been wrestling with, with uh, the guy who disciples me, and just something that we've been thinking through. Uh, and so it's really, it's something that... that hits all of us. And so we'll dive in in a moment. Uh, but back in 2013, uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live did a segment uh, that I loved. It was hilarious. Uh, where they went to the Coachella Festival. How many of you are familiar with Coachella? Anybody? All right, we got some people. So we've got the Coachella Music Festival. It happens every year. It's typically two weekends, and it's this huge music festival. And a lot of music snobs, in case you don't know, a lot of music snobs like to go to this festival. And so what Jimmy Kimmel's team did is they went out with a, a video camera and uh, they called it Lie Witness News. And so they would ask people, hey, what bands are you excited to see? Uh, and then are you excited to see uh, this band here? And then, of course, the people are like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, they've got a really hot track, and I can't wait to hear them. There's one problem. The band that they were asking about was made up. Like, they didn't really even actually exist as a band. Because what they knew is music snobs, it's a hit to their pride if you were to bring up a band that, that might be too obscure for even them to know. And I'm the same way, let's be honest. I've been a musician for probably 20-something years. Uh, I've loved music for the longest time. And there's people at work, and they'll be like, oh, dude, have you heard that new three-thumbed koala record? It's legit. And I'm like, well, yeah, totally, it's awesome. What? Right? Like, I just don't, no, I'm like, oh, totally, I'm into the underground scene. I know what's going on, right? That's how we kind of like music snobs like to live in life. So there's a little insight into to my past, right? Uh, but the reality is this. Truthfully, many of us believers will do the same thing. We'll find ourselves in the midst of a conversation and someone might be talking about uh, the characteristics of God and they'll talk about his indelible nature and you'll be like, what? Or they'll talk about his omniscience, his omnipresence, his sovereignty and deep in the back of your mind, you're just like, gosh, I really hope I know how to spell that word so I can Google it later and know what they were talking about, right? Are we honest? Yes? Okay, good. I'm not alone in that, too. Exactly. So tonight we're going to dive into soteriology. We're going to talk about eschatology. We're going to talk about the anti-super... I'm just kidding. We're not. We're going to dive into the holiness of God. That's what we want to talk about. That's what I want to lead us through, is, is talking about the holiness of God. And so we're going to look at a, a couple people in the Bible, but one person in particular who got to come face-to-face -face with the holiness of God. And this encounter changed Isaiah. And so if you have your Bible with you, go and pull it out. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And throughout this message, uh, I'm going to be asking some questions. There's not necessarily a whole lot of application, um, but there's a lot of questions. And what I want these questions to do is uh, to be questions that make you a little bit uncomfortable. I want them to challenge you so that throughout the rest of this week and hopefully in the weeks to come, that they're questions that you have to wrestle with. I want them to be, and I pray that they're going to be an opportunity for you to exercise your faith. And what I mean by that is an opportunity for you to pray and not just speak to God as you pray, 
but to challenge God to speak to you in response. And then the challenge will be for you to actually listen. Like, what is God saying about how his holiness impacts you? And what does that mean for you and for your life? And so why is this important? Why is this something that's so important to me? Uh, There's a great book written by A.W. Toza. He wrote, uh, gosh, back in the 60s. And it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. And if you want a great book that dives into the characteristics of God, I can't recommend it highly enough. But in that book, he says this. He says, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words be still and know that I am God mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. If this was the observation of a pastor in the early 1960s, how much more true is this today in the age of social media and in the age where we have up to the second news on our smartphones? We may always be connected nowadays, but are we really connected to the heart of God? So if you have your Bible with you, as I said, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. Go and pull that up. Uh, If you use your smartphone, of course, we've got the the Bible app where we put our events in there. Or if you have the Element City Church app, uh, the notes are going to be in there as well. Uh, We'll have all the the verse references up on the screen here as well. Uh, But we're going to start reading in uh, Isaiah 6, chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Jesus, tonight, I just pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would fill this time. And so in this moment, would you open our hearts uh, to receive your word as you want us to hear it? Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this passage in Isaiah, it's one of the most famous descriptions that we have in all of the Bible uh, that talks about the throne room of God that talks about somebody who got to witness God firsthand and see uh, what he is like. And so if we look at the book of Isaiah, just to give you some context, the first five chapters of this book are, are kind of Isaiah's uh, his observations of what's going on in the nation of Israel at the time. All right, so as he's writing through that, he's seeing the corruption, he's seeing the sin, he's seeing uh, the fact that here's this nation that was supposed to be set apart was supposed to be living uh, the life that God called them to live so that God could show the world what, a, what he can do, basically, when people give their lives to him. Uh, and instead of, of doing that, uh, they've turned their back on him, and they're consistently chasing after other idols, right? And so he, he writes that, and at this point, as he moves into chapter 6, what he's doing is he's really establishing his credibility as a prophet. He has this encounter with God that marks him so deeply that it changes the entire trajectory of his life. And it sets the course of his ministry and what it is he's going to be about. 
And so we read those first three verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there's another passage in Revelation that kind of gives us a glimpse into the throne room of God as well. It's in Revelation 4, 8. That's going to be up on the screen, so you don't have to jump there in your Bibles. But that said, each of these living beings had six wings. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who always was, who is, and who is to come. And so both of these passages, we see these angelic beings, okay? You're probably wondering, what the heck is a seraphim? Right? I wonder the same thing too as I was reading this. We kind of get an idea they've got wings, so they're probably a creature that if we were to see it, would freak us out. Let's be honest, right? You see six wing thing, and here, just to freak you out a little bit more, the word seraphim uh, actually comes from some Hebrew uh, that means burning ones. So these are probably flaming angels, like just these things are on fire, floating in the presence of God, and they're just constantly worshiping. They're constantly saying what? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you think that maybe God's holiness is important? Right? Back in those times, if you were to say something three times, if you were to repeat it three times in a row like that, uh, what you're doing is you're basically saying that that is the most perfect thing, that that has reached its full completion in that point. And so absolutely, wives, you know this to be true. If you want your husbands to get something, how many times do you have to say it? Usually three times, right? Right? You have to say it multiple times for us to get the point. And so that's what's going on here. Isaiah really wants us to get the point here that God cares about holiness. The question is, do you care about holiness? And are you pursuing holiness in your life? And so what does that actually mean when we talk about holiness, when we say the word holy? Uh, So let's get some definitions going on. We've got this on the screen. We'll pop that up. When we say holy, what we're saying is God is set apart. And so A.W. Tozer put it this way. There's that which is God. And then there is that which is not God. That which is not God is literally everything that is in existence, that we can see, that we can touch, that we can experience, right? All of this, this is that which is not God. That which is God exists completely separate from all of those things in a completely different way that we can't even fathom or even imagine. And so you might hear the word consecrated. That's what that means too. It's set apart. So when we talk about God being holy, what we mean is what we just sang. There is no one like our God. There's nothing like our God. There's nothing that can even compare to our God. And so clearly this is going to establish for us a bit of challenges as we try to figure out, like, what does that mean then? What does it mean that God is really set apart? And that's what we have to wrestle with tonight. But we know that it's important, obviously. Uh, And really it's so important that it, it affected, as I said, the trajectory of Isaiah's life. In the book of Isaiah, there's 60 chapters that follow this chapter. And all of those chapters are about God's holiness. He he describes God in multiple ways. He describes him as transcendently separate, as great, as authoritative, as majestic, as morally and ethically perfect. But the description that takes prominence here is the description of God's holiness. In fact, Isaiah uses the word for that. In Hebrew, it's the word kadosh. He uses it 33 times. The rest of the Old Testament combined, that word shows up only 26 times. So clearly God wants us to see something through the book of Isaiah here. He wants us to see that he is set apart, that he is holy, and that holiness matters to him. Is holiness important to us? So let's look at verse 4. 
It says it in verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So smoke here, that's the presence of God, right? And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so what do we see here? What do we see in Isaiah's response that we, can, uh, that we can glean for ourselves? When he's presented with God's holiness, we see a couple of things. First thing that we see here is that the holiness of God is meant to convict us. I remember my freshman year of college hearing a story uh, from a, just an incredible speaker, an incredible seminary professor. He's out of Cal Baptist University. His name is Jeff Lewis. Uh, and he was the co-founder of the Passion Movement with Louis Giglio. Uh, and so he came to U of A uh, multiple times, actually, in, in my time that I was uh, getting to go to school uh, at U of A. Bear down, cats, right? Uh, exactly, we can give it up for that. So uh, he basically told this story about a college student that he was mentoring. And he talked about uh, this worship experience that they had. And so this kid comes running up to him afterwards, like, Jeff, oh my gosh, that was just the most amazing thing in the middle of worship. Like I just, I had this revelation and it was Jesus himself and Jesus was looking at me and I was just like, oh man, and I was so excited. I'm just like running around and I'm just ecstatic and Jeff kind of cuts him off very lovingly. And he's like, hey man, I don't think what you saw was a vision of Jesus. You saw something, that's great. I'm glad that what you saw stirred your affections, but if you were to see Jesus, you'd have a wholly different response. If you were to fully experience the glory of God, you'd probably be trembling right now with fear. And that kid was obviously disappointed, and he spoke a little bit about that kid's disappointment. But what Jeff's point is, and really what Isaiah's showing us here, is that when we're confronted with perfection, the only thing it can do is reveal our imperfections and make us grossly aware of them. Am I right? And maybe you're like I was, right? I've got a, a nice little story about this. When I was in college, uh, we would go to Glorieta, New Mexico. Josh, where are you at? That's right. We'd go to student week together uh, at Glorieta, New Mexico, and it was fantastic. We had such a great time. Uh, and I had a buddy of mine from uh, the Phoenix area, uh, and we both played baseball, and we played baseball at rival schools in the same region. So uh, we always knew each other from church. And uh, so we'd be in the softball tournament. Well, this year was a little bit different. His sister went, and his sister was pretty attractive, right? So I was like, buddy, uh, I think I like your sister. I think I might want to talk to her this week. And he's like, hey, you have my blessing. So I'm excited, right? We have the softball tournament. We're playing LSU. It's traditionally a good school. We beat them, all right? My buddy and I combined, like we hit a couple dingers. It was a good day. I'm feeling really great about myself, right? Feeling pretty good. So we're walking back uh, to the area where we're staying. We're going to shower, getting ready for dinner, right? I'm wearing a pair of shorts. They were U of A shorts, and they were reversible shorts. So on the outside, you've got your navy and cardinal, right, representing the colors. But if you flip them inside out, they were white. So we play the game. I'm wearing the white side, right? We're walking back. My buddy's behind me. His sister's behind me. And, of course, that's the moment where he decides to point out to me, hey, man, uh, I think you've got a stain on your, on your shorts. What's going on there? And I look, and much to my horror was uh, some stains in a very sensitive area. That's right, I had scud marks on my shorts. Right, right in front of the girl that I'm totally like, oh, I want to talk to her. And I'm horrified. Like, obviously, I'm standing there. Oh, it was bad. It was really bad. I was so embarrassed. I can't even tell you how embarrassed I was. And the reality is this. When we come face to face with the holiness of God, it's worse than realizing that we have poop stains on the back of our shorts. Right? Because in that moment, 
every sinful thing that we know is present in our lives starts to come to, our, 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 to the forefront of our minds. We recognize that we have no business being in the presence of a holy God. And this is what happens to Isaiah here in verse 5. He says, woe is me, I'm a man with unclean lips. What does he mean by that? There's a recognition from Isaiah that his lips are unworthy of giving any sort of praise to God. It's only when Isaiah Isaiah sees God as he truly is that Isaiah could see himself for who he really was. And when he says he dwells in a land of people with unclean lips, all throughout the Old Testament there's this recurring theme with Israel. Despite the fact that they were called a holy nation in Exodus 19 and that God called them to be set apart, they consistently were pursuing other idols and other things before they were pursuing God. They were meant to be set apart from all nations, but yet they could never even stay faithful to the Lord who called them to that holiness. Do you see in your own life where you are a person of unclean lips? Do you see who you are in relation to a holy God? What do you see in our culture that shows that we're, we're dwelling amongst a people of unclean lips? Remember this, God cares about holiness. Are we pursuing holiness with our lives? But I want us to notice God's response to Isaiah. So let's look at verse six. It says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, nope, that's eight, go back to six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. I want you to see here, God, when he convicts us with his holiness, when our sin comes to the forefront, what's God's response? It's not, of course you're unholy, get out of my presence, right? He's not casting us away. He's not shaming you. He's not trying to make you feel guilty or rub it in. God's response is to send a movement of the angels to you to cleanse you. God's waiting for you to draw near to him simply by confessing your sin. And in that moment, that's what frees the Lord to send what he needs to so that we can receive the forgiveness we need. And so when we look at this passage here, when it talks about this burning coal, if you look in the book of Revelation in the throne room of God, they talk about the brazen altar, right? So that's probably where the seraph is getting this coal from, that they take the tongs from this altar. And what that that burning coal uh, uh, symbolizes is substitutionary atonement. So even here in the book of Isaiah, we're already looking forward to the fact that Jesus will one day take the cross, substituting himself in our place to take the punishment for our sins in order that we too might be cleansed. And I know that some of you are probably sitting here tonight and your shame weighs heavy on you. If you're like me, you hear a message like this, trust me, I've been preparing this for all week long and all I can think about is just the ways that I consistently fall short of the glory of God. I know myself, I know the things that I do. And for you, you might just be like, hey, Lyle, you've got no idea what I've done in the past. There's no way that God can forgive me. And you're right, I don't know what's going on in your past. I don't know where you came from. I don't know what burdens you carry. But what I do know is this, that because God is holy, that nobody is able to stand before him on their own righteousness. No human being has ever been able to do that, save the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. Every single one of us will stand before him with our imperfections, but you need to hear this. When you stand before God, his movement is not away from you. His movement is toward you. 
His word says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And as he's moving towards you, remember, it's not to embarrass you. It's not to make you feel bad. It's not to make you feel any worse than you will. It's to make you holy. Because God cares about holiness. Can you see how God has sought to make you holy? How are you pursuing holiness in your own life? And so one thing that often escapes us uh, when we have this conversation about God's holiness is that he has to distance himself from sin in order to maintain his purity. And I think that this can sometimes uh, make us, ultimately what we do is we make the mistake of seeing God as distancing himself from us personally, as opposed to seeing that what God has to do is he has to distance himself from the sin that's inside of us. Because our sin ultimately would do what? It would make him unholy, and he can't do that. He can't be anything other than what he already is. So God's heart has never been to isolate himself from us because his intention has never been to separate himself from us. What he's been doing is separating himself from the sin that's inside of us. And so because of our imperfections, this natural separation does have to exist. Because God is devoted to maintaining his honor, he's devoted to maintaining his purity. And if we're honest, we might lash out at God because of this. And why is that? The reality is, how many people do you know that have pursued holiness in their own life? Right? I know I've had plenty of friends that they get to this point where they're pursuing this and they understand this. But then there, there becomes this point where it's like their holiness is not from Christ any longer. Their holiness comes from themselves. And so you get this self-righteous attitude that people start to develop, right? Where it's that holier than thou. That's why we say that. That's where that comes from, this idea of this person's better than everybody else because of how holy they are, right? Like we see that and we're disgusted by that. And hear me, God's disgusted by that too. That's an unloving and that's an unbiblical attitude that we're never meant to have. But what we cannot do is make the mistake of placing other people's imperfections on a holy and a blameless God. It's so easy for us to see uh, bad character traits in ourselves and in other people, and then project that onto God. And we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't fall into that trap. But as we get this true revelation and understanding of what holiness is and the way that Isaiah did, what we can do is get a better understanding of the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, in A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he wrote this. He said, to be holy, God does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being anything other than it is. Because he is holy, his attributes are holy. Since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of his creation all exist or are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys his creation. And get this, he hates iniquity or he hates sin as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. So this is why our sin grieves God. 
This is why, because of God's holiness, that he has to separate himself from us. Because God necessarily has to, to fight to destroy the sin that's inside of us. And that sin that's inside of us, in the same way that the polio takes the life of a child, it's that sin that robs us from enjoying the life that God has created us to live. It's the sin that denies us the ability to experience the fullness of God's blessings that he wishes to lavish upon his people. But what's awesome about all this is that, that God is always at the ready. He's waiting to give you glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of his glory. Because without this understanding, why would we even care about what's right and wrong? Why would we even care about sin? Why would it matter? But that's why God is always ready to draw near to those who draw near to him. And all it takes for that nearness to feel evident to you, we just read it in 1 John 1, 9. It's just, a, it's the simple act of confession. Notice that's what Isaiah did. He didn't even ask for forgiveness. Isaiah's comment was simply, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. It was just a, a recognition of who he really was. And in that moment, God was there. So thus far, we've taken a look at Isaiah. We've looked at this vision of how uh, his vision of God's holiness affected him. Uh, but there's another person who got to encounter uh, firsthand the divinity and the holiness of God. And that's the disciple Peter. And so if you're like me, Peter's one of everyone's favorite disciples, right? Just, uh, he was so brash. He was just passionate, very zealous. Um, you know, Peter was described as the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. Uh, Peter was the one who got to be on the mountain with Jesus in the transfiguration, uh, along with a couple other disciples. And in fact, those three disciples, uh, they got to live in closer proximity to Jesus than anybody else because they were the three that Jesus was mentoring. And so Peter understood this about the holiness of God. Not only is the holiness of God uh, meant uh, to convict us, uh, we skipped kind of over it. The second one, the holiness of God was really, it's meant to draw us closer to God. Uh, but thirdly here, the holiness of God is meant to change us to make us more like Jesus. And so he writes in 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 13 through 16. If you want to get there, he says this. He says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know many better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And so the call for us as followers of Jesus is clear. We're meant to be holy. And this is really what I've been wrestling with over the past six months, is how does this work itself out in, in everyday life? Uh, there's this tension that exists, right? Where it's like, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that there's a sinful nature inside me, and yet I know that I'm meant to be holy and that God is calling me to this holiness. So how do I do that? How do we do that? And so Peter goes on to write in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, he talks about this. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you, catch this, to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. 
Did you get that? We get to share. Some translations will say we are partakers of the divine nature. The very divinity that lives within Jesus is accessible to us too. What's different between Peter as a Christian and Isaiah as a follower of God and you and me? What's the difference? Jesus came, yeah, he's there. But what was the difference? What, what, what makes Peter any better than you or me? Yeah, he got to walk with Jesus. Yeah, that makes it maybe easier for him. But the reality is this is telling us here that the same divinity that was in Christ can be a part of all of us. And I don't mean that we're gonna ascend to be gods. That's not what we're saying at all. What I'm saying is this, that the very same power that raised Christ from the dead lives within you in the Holy Spirit. And because you have the Holy Spirit within you, God has enabled you and me to live the life of holiness that he's called us to live. I was talking with another pastor in town, just kind of brainstorming about, how do I talk about this? What do we say? Um, Like, how do I share this with people? Like, what's been on my heart? And he was, in light of his congregation, he's like, you know, if I was talking to to the people in our church, the thing I think that Christians in our church have the hardest thing to, to, the hardest thing for a Christian in our church to understand is that when God looks at them, he doesn't see their sin. He sees Jesus. I think that's probably true in all of us, that it's the hardest thing to think that, man, the Holy Spirit is alive and lives inside of me. Uh, Like, we we can say that, but do we really believe that? And do we really believe that when God looks at us, that what he sees inside of us is Christ? Because again, we know ourselves. I know me. I had to drive to work today. I know the thoughts that I think when I'm driving to work, right? I know the thoughts I think when I'm driving in Tucson traffic, right? I know the horrible things that I've said about other people. Again, it's usually when I'm driving in traffic. But this does, it creates that tension within us that we talked about, right? There's this tension that God is calling us to strive for holiness. And yet we realize that we're still sinful beings, that we still have sinful desires that that come at us every day, every single day. And this leads us to a point where we, we have a, I've heard it called a crisis of belief. But really what it is, it's, it's a moment to say, is this really what I believe is true? Am I able to act out my faith on this? Are we willing to take God at his word? Are we willing to believe that what scripture says about us is true, despite the fact that our, our sin might weigh us down? Are we willing to believe that Jesus didn't just die for us, but he now lives in us and he lives through us? Mark 1, uh, verses 40 through 45. Tell the story of a leper uh, that approaches Jesus. And this leper says, if you will, make me clean. So Jesus knows he's not God, uh, or he doesn't come to Jesus saying, uh, can you make me clean? He knows Jesus can make him clean. It's if you will do it, would you make me clean, right? And Jesus, his simple response is, I will. You're clean. Like, that's it. That's all he has to do, because he's divine. We get that. But Tim Keller wrote this devotional about this passage of scripture, and just bear with me, it's a little bit long. But he says this, and I think that this is really important for us to get this point. He says, contracting leprosy was one of the most tragic things that could have happened to an individual in the ancient world. Whenever a leper was around other people, he was required to shout, unclean, unclean. So passersby would know to keep their distance. Leper was required to live alone outside the camp so as to reduce the risk of transmitting his disease to others. To be a leper was to be isolated and humiliated perpetually. 
And then Jesus came and changed everything. One of the great beauties of the Gospels is how frequently they record Jesus' interactions with lepers. He approached them and was approached by them. He treated them with respect and kindness. He even did the unthinkable. He touched them, and his touch made them clean. Jesus healed the lepers. Many biblical scholars have pointed out that there is an analogy between the physical condition of leprosy and the spiritual condition of sin. Sin in our hearts isolates us, both from God and from other people. Try as we might to hide it or remove it, the stain of sin remains present. We are unclean and we know it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the contagiously clean man. When he touched the leper, Jesus did not contract leprosy. Rather, the leper became clean. Those trying in vain to remove their sin must allow themselves to be touched by the contagiously clean man. Once we get a glimpse of our depravity, of our sinful nature, in light of God's holiness, we can then get a true understanding of the power of the gospel and why it really is good news. As we fix our eyes on Jesus and live our lives in gratitude for what he did for us on the cross, we see that we're able to pursue a life of holiness because we're no longer motivated by a sense of duty or a sense of obligation. Rather, we're motivated by the love and the thanksgiving that resides in our hearts for a God who would plunge himself down to the depths of hell so that we could ascend to the heights of heaven if we confess our sins and we put our faith in Jesus. And what happens when a group of people get this and they understand this together? When they commit themselves to living this very life out as a community of believers, that's when we get the church. And I don't know about you, but that's the type of church that I want to belong to. That's the type of community I want to be a part of. When I think about Element City Church and I think about the impact that we have in Tucson and who we are in Christ, this is who I want us to be. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, and now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, and now you have received God's mercy. And that leads us kind of to this last point. We've been talking about it. But ultimately, the holiness of God is meant to shine through us in order to draw others to Jesus. Again, I get it. The worry here is this. There have been so many people over the years that their pursuit of holiness has become a pursuit of self-righteousness. And hear me, that's not what we want to be as a church. Amen? What we want to be is a group of people who are Christ-filled believers who pursue a life of holiness so that people see what it looks like to live the abundant life in Christ. They see what it looks like to see the blessings of God just pouring out upon, not just us, but pouring upon the people that we get to come into contact with simply because that contagiously clean man has cleansed us and has given us the power to then go out on his behalf and to bring that contagiously clean spirit to others. That's a big deal. We want to be a group of people where others can't help but see that there's something different about us, something that allows us to point others directly to Christ. Because we recognize that the holiness in us has never really been ours or a result of our effort in the first place, though. It's always been because of Jesus, and it's always been because of Christ living in us. 
So as we wrap up, um, I just want to tell a story. Last year, my wife and I got to go to Europe. We went to, we try to go every other year or so to get back to her home country of Ukraine. We want to see her family and spend time with them. Uh, but last year was a little bit different for us, and it was special uh, because we decided to take a few weeks before that to go see other parts of Europe, and I'd never been. Uh, so we went to Munich, Germany. Uh, we drove down through Austria. We got to go into northern Italy uh, and, and just drive through Bavaria and the Alps. And uh, I tell you what, gosh, it was some of the most magnificent things that I've ever seen in my life. We're talking just breathtaking moments. I, I've never felt that. But literally moments where like we would come around the corner and see something and I just stopped breathing because it was just so majestic these Alps, right? Like you just see these dramatic changes in elevation. You see this lush green all around all of that. You see these castles just kind of dotting the top of hills. It's just like, what the heck? Like that is so different than what we see here in the desert of Tucson, right? And the, the desert has its own beauty. I get that. I know that. But I grew up here. I'm used to that. So to see something that was so different just took my breath away. But that trip came at a cost. Right? It cost us something. We had to save up vacation time so that we were able to get the time off from work to go on the trip. We had to save up money so that we could buy tickets so we could fly over there. And then we had to pay for accommodations. We had to pay for gas so that we were able to drive around. We had to pay for food. We had to, to pay for quite a bit. And then there's the cost of time. How many people like to travel for about 30 hours? Nobody, right? Nobody. That gets to the point where like, you're just having fights simply because... You're, right? It's not just hangry. It's like you're tired and angry. That's bad. We know this. But my friend, your pursuit of holiness is no different. The pursuit of holiness is really a pursuit of beauty. It's a pursuit of the beauty of God. And it will come at a cost to you. If you want to be set apart, it will cost you time as you put other things aside to read and absorb God's word. It'll cost you time as you're willing to let God interrupt your life with other people that you're meant to serve. If you want to be set apart, it may cost you your reputation as you choose to disengage from things that just don't contribute to living a holy life. If you want to be set apart, it may cost you relationships as you choose to abstain from certain pleasures that the Bible says are just not the season for you to participate in those things. If you want to be set apart, you'll have to learn to say no to things that aren't necessarily wrong. But it certainly would be confusing to others if you saw, them doing, saw you doing those things. I can tell you this much. The pursuit of it will be worth it. If you find, you'll find yourself in the midst of breathtaking moment after breathtaking moment as you get to see time and again how God draws you to his holiness and reveals to you his holiness throughout all of creation, through, through other people, through his word. Because ultimately, we've got to remember this. God cares about holiness. How are you pursuing holiness in your own life? Let's pray. Father, you are a holy God and we are unworthy, unworthy people to get to go into your presence, uh, to sing your praises. 
And yet, Lord, you made a way for us to be able to do that. Your love for us was so great that you pursued us relentlessly. You sent your son, Jesus, to come and live the perfect life that we could never live, to be the substitutionary atonement that we needed so that we could become your children. Thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you made the way for us when we were dead in our own sins and dead in our own lives and could do nothing of our own accord to work our way back to you. And so as we process this message, God, as we ask ourselves, do I care about holiness? Is holiness something that I'm pursuing in my life? God, the reality is most of us know what right and wrong is. We don't struggle with moral decisions. But what we do is we just choose the wrong because it's easier or because it seems more enjoyable than you. And so, Father, would you break our heart of that? Would you allow us to see the fullness of your glory, to see the fullness of your holiness in such a way that it changes our trajectory in the same way it changed Isaiah's life? Would it change our lives so that we would be devoted to your things, to what you've called us to? And Father, as we process this too, as we seek to be holy as you are holy, would it not manifest itself in a group of people who are proud of their own works and proud of the things that they've done? But would it result uh, in a beautiful, humble, gentle love that's willing to, to serve and to sacrifice oneself so that we can bring others into relationship with you?